This is Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where you can come and get lit, Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get set for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. I'm starting with another personal anecdote today. I want to assure you in advance that the story ultimately doesn't take a traumatic turn, although it may seem like it will initially. I'm also going to return to this anecdote in both sections of today's episode. When I first started teaching, I was the instructor for this course in Canadian literature, one I had to teach simultaneously on-site and online. And yes, these were the pre-pandemic days. I had to wear this headset for the online students. As might be expected, I was more acquainted with the students who appeared on-site in the classes than the students off-site, except for one. This student, let's call him John, John came to my attention when he gloriously failed his midterm. Upon receiving his grade, he sent me this email demanding why he'd failed. That email didn't alarm me because students routinely ask me questions when they don't do well. No, what did alarm me was his second email, apologizing for the link he had sent in the first email, a link I hadn't actually noticed and thought was simply part of his signature. I then returned to John's first email. And yes, I can almost hear some of you saying, No, Linda! No, don't do it. Yes, I clicked on the said link. The link then led me to a web page with a photo that featured John, one arm dangling around the neck of his Rottweiler, the other hand poised in the air, his middle finger prominently displayed. John was gazing directly out at the camera with a look that was, well, nothing short of menacing. A look that told me, I should have thought it over before giving him a failing grade. Yes, my dear listeners, he had made his point. At first, though, I ignored the point. Then John began calling the receptionist of the department to ask, um, excuse my language, please, but to ask where the fuck the professor was when, for example, he didn't find me in my office. He had dropped by on a particular day happily, I still think, when I actually didn't have office hours. Still, I was trying to be rational. He was an off-site student, so I tried to ignore the situation. But my body began to manifest these very strange symptoms just before the last few classes of the term. Stomach aches, headaches, cold hands, poor concentration, insomnia. Then, during the final week of classes, I received another email from him that was just too obvious to ignore, and I just knew, or rather my body knew. John was going to appear directly on campus in my very last class. On that day, I picked up my books and papers for the final lecture and clutched them to my chest. I made my way down the long corridor toward my classroom, my legs feeling like lead. And then, on a bodily instinct, Instead of entering the room, I sauntered past it, glancing in the room as I did so. 
In that quick glance, I apprehended that John was sitting, dead center in the front row. No books, no papers in front of him, his hands hidden beneath the desk. By now my heart was racing. I made my way toward another empty class, peered around, and found an emergency campus phone, called security. After apprising them of where I was and what I was afraid of, they came. They spoke to me, and then they went to my classroom and spoke to him. A few moments later, they returned and told me that John insisted it was his right to be there, as he'd paid for the course. I reflected for a moment, felt my throat tighten, then turned to the security guards. Then surely it's my right to cancel a class, isn't it? They glanced at each other, shrugged, and agreed. So I asked them to cancel my class on my behalf while I went home. Safe, if not certain, what might have happened otherwise. I told myself for days that I was being silly, but my body had a very different record of the experience. My body was complaining, loudly, and telling me in short that what had happened wasn't right. It didn't exactly end there, no. The next day I dropped in to see the chair of the department. Sidebar, yes, I have seen the Netflix series The Chair because I'll see anything with Sandra O in it although I have mixed feelings about this production. And I told the chair everything that had happened over the past couple of weeks. He was wonderful and supportive, I'm happy to say. But when he took it to the dean, she was less so. And it wasn't until he applied pressure that she searched further and discovered that he'd been threatening his professors for at least a couple of years. And so the student was expelled. I was relieved. It was over. Now, let's leave this anecdote to the side just for a few moments. In the first part of this episode, I'm discussing Jane Rule's Taking My Life, even if she is perhaps most renowned for her book, Desert of the Heart. Although some of you, my dear listeners, may not have heard of her at all. But here's what you need to know. Born in 1931, Rule is an extremely important novelist and activist in the context of North American literature and she was a significant contributor to the gay liberation periodical The Body Politic. That magazine existed between 1971 and 1987. It's a Toronto-based, or was rather a Toronto-based magazine, but it had international readership. Well, Desert of the Heart was her first novel, published in 1964, and it's considered a watershed literary achievement because it explores and champions a successful lesbian relationship in a mainstream genre at a time when, being homosexual, was still deemed criminal according to Canadian law, and when no one else was doing so, that is, no one else was publishing such novels, she was paving the way for other lesbian writers who would follow thereafter. At first, she received rejection after rejection for this novel, approximately 22 times, until Secker and Warburg took a risk, to their great credit, and Desert of the Heart went on to find a very receptive audience and to pave the way for other lesbian writing thereafter. It was also, incidentally, produced by director Donna Deitch into a movie called Desert Hearts in 1985. I've produced links to these in my show notes. Now, I could talk about this novel and extensively too. But there's something about Taking My Life, a memoir about the first 21 years of Rule's life, that I find 
utterly compelling. Before I say more, what you need to know in advance is that Jane Rule was as fastidious about the editing of her novels as she was with the documentation surrounding her life in novels. There are, right now, roughly 70 boxes of papers and other materials, manuscripts, letters, newspaper reviews, photographs, and so on, that were preserved in the first and subsequent accessions made at the University of British Columbia in 1988, almost 10 years before she died. With the aid of a research assistant at the time, Andrea Zilyagi, and with Rule's permission, she was alive then, I began to peruse boxes upon boxes of material in the Jane Rule fonds. But it wasn't until July 2008, almost a year after she died, that I stumbled across a document called Taking My Life. What appeared to be her handwritten autobiography, I say stumbled because it wasn't listed in the catalog of her papers and I was caught off guard. But there it was, in box 13, with other manuscripts of stories and essays that had either found publication or not. An entire manuscript, written on 11 by 18 inch yellow foolscap paper in her own hand. I read through it. My heart was racing in this instance out of sheer excitement. An unpublished memoir written in her own handwriting. Rule's memoir is a key piece of work, since memoirs, like autobiographies, were once regarded as part of the male domain. They were once primarily written by politicians or military leaders and other historically important figures. Memoirs are usually meant to exemplify temporal period and one's location in the period. It's not about showcasing a whole life, but rather it's a glimpse of an era, and it will often deal with the development of a career, not so much a personal life. Rather than focusing on an entire span of one's life, as autobiographies do, they go from birth to death, for example. Memoirs focus on the development of a person and their relationship with others, and they are therefore written from the first-person point of view. Well, in this instance, Rule begins with her birth through to her 21st year. In examining the years of her childhood and adolescence, she looks intensely at family dynamics, tracks the emergence of her sexual life, and alludes to the beginnings of her writing career. Her childhood is set up to contrast with her adolescence. Her relationship with her mother, for example, is characterized by acceptance and love and approval and respect. But then she contextualizes that early childhood within the process of maturation within a society that created sometimes seemingly insurmountable pressures, at first eliciting a sense of ambivalence as she awakens to her growing sexual desire for other women. So I quote here from Jane Rule's Taking My Life. I seem to hold two mutually exclusive views, that my love for other women represented what was best in me, and that it was a sin, or more ambiguously and truly put, what was specifically good and generally bad. The memoir then tracks the increasing demands of conformity that became oppressive for Rule, and she simply refused to comply, could not comply. She progressively resisted and challenged those elements of heteronormative structures that tried to inculcate what was deemed appropriate or proper conduct for women, that is, heterosexual women. 
and then she cultivated, in real and literary terms, the means to challenge the patterns of silence that had marginalized her as a cisgender lesbian woman. She developed a literary voice with which to cry out against discriminatory and oppressive conduct. Let me just say one or two more things about the title and the memoir before I focus on one element of the narrative for today's episode. As I say, in this case, her memoir was lodged in her archives, yet to be published. She only selected those papers that offered her view of her life. A literary landscape through personal and professional correspondence, drafts of manuscripts, rejected novels, and so on. The materials that she left implicitly reflected her own associations, her values, her priorities, her understanding of her life as a writer and her place within a national imaginary. That material became an expression of what place she believed her work would have or would eventually serve in a political or cultural landscape. So, leaving the memoir in the archive became a means of extending those values and priorities, I think, seeing them extend beyond her lifetime. Rule's painstaking safeguarding of her papers offers an example of how a marginalized writer might create imaginative, even literal space for oneself, as the content of the archive also reveals the challenges in fashioning her career and establishing crucial groundwork for those who followed her thereafter. Now, the title of the memoir, Taking My Life, which she used on the handwritten document, is resonant, even haunting especially when contextualized within an understanding of Rule's rigorous editorial practices and her lifelong struggle to protect her freedom of expression and literary integrity. The title sheds light on another possible answer to the question of why the manuscript remained unpublished during her lifetime. In writing about her early formative years, she is indeed taking or capturing her life, measuring it, Resting it back from those who would have robbed her of her agency and autonomy, assessing its pleasurable and painful contours, and accounting for how and why her life evolved as it did. Rua must have also appreciated the implications of the title she chose. She was taking her life, with all its implications of suicide and agency. She took up her life then gave up a literary rendering of her life to critical scrutiny, relinquished it to others, and in so doing, she allowed herself to be vulnerable to the interpretive critiques of her readers, academic and otherwise, even as she extended her life's value. Rule observes in Taking My Life that writing it may be a positive way of assessing her life and rendering it to that critical scrutiny. But the may she includes also suggests some measure of doubt. Positive or negative, Rule ultimately decides to write the memoir because, quote, I may be able to learn to value my life as something other than the hard and threateningly pointless journey it has often seemed. This remark appears to be rather uncharacteristic for Rule, in whose fiction deep sorrow is often flanked by or intermingled with deep joy and even celebration, and in whose essays her voice is rather more feisty than despondent. Perhaps a function of her debilitating arthritis in the last few years of her life, her sense of resignation is countered 
by the act of will the writing of her memoir itself represents. Indeed, in transcribing this text, as I had for publication with Talon, I asserted my own belief that her life was far, far from pointless. And I know from the volume of letters by adoring fans in her archive that many others think so too. For today's episode, there is just one more element of the memoir I really want us to focus on, and that's how the narrative tracks her growing awareness of her sexuality, her sexual identity at a time when that life and that identity were being directed in ways that speak to forms of what I'm going to call bodily coercion. That is, the narrative bears witness to the mounting pressure on her to conform and the real bodily and psychological responses to that pressure, how her body registers and resists the challenges of a heteronormative mainstream society and the general induction of young bodies into that society. There's much I could say about Jane Rule's early life, but for now what I'll say is that it focused on fairly conventional gender-based standards for the period. She's sent to dance classes, she's taught to sing and sew, and with her brother she learns ballroom dancing, a fact that Rule identifies as increasingly emblematic of a world or a generation that's changing and passing. These parts of her life generally don't disturb Rule. But as she enters adolescence, it becomes clear that she's increasingly uncomfortable with the pressures she experiences related to the path toward which she's being directed. While some of those responses are articulated in the narrative and through conversation with others, the quote-unquote intensified restraint, those are her terms, that intensified restraint is often bodily expressed. In the takeaway section, yes, I'm giving you advance notice, I'm going to speak to you about Sarah Ahmed's new book, Complaint, which is an absolutely brilliant endeavor. In this book, Ahmed speaks about something she calls grooming, and I'm going to borrow from it here. Now, you may think that bodily grooming refers to how you dress or how you style your hair, if you even have hair or choose to have hair, and that's certainly one interpretation which is relevant and applicable here because Rule is being instructed about how to act and look like a woman. Making reference to Castilea, the school she was attending, and specifically to the headmaster, Miss Espinoza, she refers to the fact that, quote, Miss Espinoza saw fit to hire a woman from a charm school in San Francisco, paid for out of the student treasury, to give us lessons in makeup, wardrobe, and deportment. First, she demonstrated makeup, using the girl who had been chosen to play the Virgin Mary in the Christmas pageant. There in the chapel, the Virgin was transformed into a whore. Then in the gym, we were instructed to imitate our instructor as she walked to music. I went home to write an angry criticism about wasting our own funds on such blatant nonsense when we should have been taught to talk to the nearest college. So grooming can mean this kind of grooming. That is, one's preoccupation with how one looks and comports oneself. But that's not exactly what Ahmed means. And it's certainly not entirely what I mean either for the purposes of today's episode. No, this is what Ahmed says about it in relation to institutional harassment and bullying. 
Grooming is a word that tends to be used retrospectively. Grooming describes a process that has an end in sight, and until you reach the end, it's hard to notice the process. The process works by not making the end clear until it's too late, for the boundaries being pushed back and back and back are the very boundaries we need to protect ourselves. Bodies, Ahmed thus affirms, can store what institutions prefer to file away. Bodies can also store what minds file away, which is how we come to feel the truth of something in our bones. And finally, she adds, if bodies can end up in documents, and documents end up in files, bodies can also be files. Bodies can be filing cabinets, holders of multiple files. What is filed away by institutions can be stored in our bodies, experienced often as weight. The body of the complainer is a testimony to the work of the complaint. In short, what I'm suggesting is that Rule is showing us how she is being groomed to be a heterosexual young woman. The litany of attempts made to induct her into a heterosexual body politic to which she has a series of bodily responses, migraines, insomnia, panic attacks, are a register of the increasing pressures that Rule experiences, pressures for her to conform to a heteronormative society that doesn't allow space for her or her desires. So grooming here refers to the repeated and successive gestures that are actually forms of aggression, minor or otherwise, that compel you, oblige you to comply, bend, shape yourself to certain attitudes or strictures or perspectives. And her body, it becomes clear, is manifesting all kinds of complaints to demonstrate that what is happening to her is definitely not right. She would learn to complain and resist and fight against that which she knew was not right, because she could feel it in her bones. This is the takeaway portion of the podcast. As you already know, I'm recommending, and very highly to, Sarah Ahmed's new book, Complaint. For those of you who don't know her work, this is a very, very good way to become acquainted with it. But it's preceded by an impressive trajectory that also includes living a feminist life, the promise of happiness, queer phenomenology, and the cultural politics of emotion. This one was released on September 1st, 2021 by Duke University Press. Ahmed already has an extraordinary reputation, and it's absolutely well-earned. She famously left her position at Goldsmiths in England to protest against how students were being treated when they complained after they were allegedly sexually harassed there. And she's since researched how such institutions deal with complaints, which has since culminated in her study of the phenomenon of harassment, bullying, and abuse, the patterns that manifest and demonstrate institutional power and indifference to harassment while maintaining policies and procedures that are effectively discursive window dressing. That is, they're merely there to position or advertise the institution in more sympathetic ways, while they engage in doing nothing at all. 
these, what Ahmed calls non-performative gestures, are useful for the sake of appearances, and they aren't really meant to go very deep. You might, for example, be met with a sign that says, all are welcome, only to be confronted by an attitude that you weren't actually expected to show up. Lodging a complaint in this instance becomes part of the exhausting labor to attempt to change an institution, attempt being the operative word. But here she highlights the importance of becoming what she calls a feminist ear, deeply listening and becoming attuned to the nature and diversity of complaints. This book specifically calls on her research related to the written and oral testimonies of those she interviewed who either reportedly complained about experiences of abuse and harassment and bullying within the universities, or who refused to register such complaints formally. So she looks at the patterns that manifest themselves as examples of abuses of power, which she suggests reveal to us how the dynamics of power actually work, the strategies employed that ignore, stifle, pretend to hear and address, the strategic inefficiency, attitudes of institutional fatalism, or of indifference or non-responsiveness while the status quo is maintained. Complaint, she says in the introduction, a path of greater resistance. The institution, she says, becomes what you come up against. To hear complaint can be to hear that silence. What is not being said, what is not being done, what is not being dealt with. Frustration, she notes, can be a feminist record. Quote, My desire to do this research also came from my conviction that if you ask those who complain about their experiences of complaint, you'll learn so much about institutions and about power. Complaint as feminist pedagogy. Yes, frustration, she concludes, can be a feminist record. The book is divided into five parts, the introduction and four other sections, including the conclusion. In the first section, she examines the importance of really listening to complaints, listening rather than dismissing them, being able to discern the institutional mechanics of power, for to identify an environment as, quote, hostile, is to be identified as hostile, as causing damage. Quote. You can hear the real subtlety of her arguments in a passage like this one. Quote, Whether or not a complaint gets uptake can depend on the extent to which the environment of the institution in which the complaint is made is part of the problem. When you make the environment part of the problem, your complaint becomes more of a problem. And then also this one. The same complaint procedures used as tools to redress bullying and harassment can be used as tools to bully and to harass. In section two, she explores the means by which complaints can travel or not. How complaint is something which you are in, a zone, a space, an environment, which we may inhabit or dwell in or on, and that the violence against the person who registers the complaint may escalate as a means of stopping the complaint. Because of that negative dwelling, those who complain might leave the institution. But, she observes ominously, what 
or who they complain about, remains. The escalation of violence against those who complain about violence is how violence remains. In the third part, she looks at doors, their appearance literally and metaphorically in narratives of complaint, at opportunities that are opened or closed, how systems of racial, class, and gender segregation, for example, enlist doors to do certain kinds of work, how doors can be used to direct human traffic, and how an academic network, collegiality, forms of loyalty can function of doors. Who, she asks, who holds the door? By the last part of the book, she reminds us that although complaints may seem ineffectual in these kinds of contexts, they are vital to eroding structures of power. Impact, she reminds us, is a slow inheritance. The real nuance and sophistication of this book, written with such emotional and intellectual insight, the means by which Ahmed identifies strategies of institutional power in relation to harassment and abuse, is revelatory, thorny, painful, and very, very necessary. I was reminded, too, of how our bodies are registers of these experiences, as my own body responded to the deeply uncomfortable moments characterized in this very book. I remembered the experience, too, among others, with my former student, John. My hands at times went ice cold, and I even had trouble focusing while I read this book but not because it isn't superb, it really is. In this instance, this kind of discomfort is ultimately worth it. What she explores and reveals is so very important and reminds us why contemporary universities have come under fire, what they have done and not done with the power and privilege they hold, and how their procedures and handling of complaints or those who advance such complaints may be a sign of their abuse of power, rather than real or meaningful accountability to those who are associated with it. And even as these institutions try to repress, hide, disguise, push back, our bodies will complain, and they will remind us, and them, that something needs to change. Thank you for joining me in today's episode of Getting Lit with Linda. I hope you join me in two weeks' time when I'll be looking at Wayson Choice, the JPNE. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to see covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.